Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews 11, beginning in the 8th verse. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. This wonderful chapter is a catalog of the heroes and heroines of faith from olden times. And this entire chapter is really, as we've stated previously, an expansion of the words in chapter 10, verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. How shall Christian people live in a world that is antagonistic to the claims of Christ? By faith in the Lord. The just shall live by faith. It's the only way to live. We don't live by sight. Based on the circumstances around us, we live by faith in the Son of God. And what he's doing in this chapter, as we've learned previously in our studies together, is he is giving us a chronological list of people who were faithful to God, again, in spite of their pressures. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Their stories are told in the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 4, 5, and 6, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Today he moves to Genesis chapter 12, to the end of the book of Genesis, as he deals with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the most notable examples of faith in the ancient world, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And you'll notice that the passage I've read in your hearing today contains over one-third of the material in Hebrews chapter 11. It is by far the dominant focus of this chapter. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Now, I think it's important as we look at our text this morning to remind ourselves of several of the definitions of faith that we have discussed in recent weeks. Verse 1 of Hebrews 11 defines it as the substance of things hoped for. That is, faith looks toward the future. It is the underpinning or the substructure, the foundation of our hope. Of course, hope speaks of tomorrow, doesn't it? Hope speaks of something that you're looking forward to, and faith is the undergirding of that hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it deals with both the unknown tomorrow and the invisible present. We've defined faith as reasoning trust in God. That's a good definition. If I ever write a dictionary, I may put that in there. Reasoning trust in God. Faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith does not check our brains at the door, but it exercises divine logic and says things like this. If God loved me enough to give his son to die for me, then he loves me enough to take care of me every day in my life. If God is able to feed the sparrows and clothe the fields with flowers, then he's able to provide for my needs. You notice the divine logic, the reasoning trust in that kind of formula. In one of our messages, we said faith is the eye of the soul, a spiritual sense. Now, I have eyes in my body with which I can see physical things. But, my beloved, I can't see God with these natural eyes. But faith sees the invisible. It's the eye of the soul. It perceives reality. And I've also defined faith in our studies as a believing response to God's word in spite of feelings within us circumstances around us, and consequences ahead of us. Faith means that I do what God said in spite of how I feel, whether it looks like it will work out in the circumstances around me or whatever the consequences might be. Faith means I go forward trusting God in spite of all those things. I liked Elder Chris Taylor's definition of faith he gave us last weekend during our special meeting. He said, faith is believing that something is so, even though it is not so, until it becomes so, because God said so. I like that. One thing is certain, my beloved, faith deals with the future. And today, I want us to learn that living by faith means living in the future tense. That's our sermon topic this morning, living in the future tense. Now, we are familiar with that principle, living in the future tense. Engaged couples who have set a wedding day spend their time living right now in light of that future date, don't they? They live in the future tense. In fact, their thoughts are about that wedding date and the marriage that is to follow. They get uh, invitations sent out and they get a venue and they ask a preacher to officiate and they order flowers and set up a photographer and the bride picks out her wedding dress and they are living in the future tense. They're making decisions right now based on something that is to come in the future. Faith, my beloved, 
is essentially a matter of living in the future tense. Now, the Judaizers who were troubling the early Christians, and that's one of the reasons that the book of Hebrews was written, because the Jews around them were saying that you still have to keep the law. They were living only in the past tense. And there are so many people who live only in the past tense. They're so interested in preserving yesterday that they fail to consider the needs of the hour and what is ahead of us. They're living in the past tense. Now, of course, history has a place. It's important to remember where we came from, to look to the hole of the pit from whence we were digged, to think back to our small beginnings, and also to remember that there's nothing new under the sun, right? And that the old tried and true paths are the best way to travel for the church of God and for the believer. So there's an importance in valuing the past, but you can't live back there, can you? You can't live in the past. The past is a cancel check, and it's of no value to anyone but your accountant. And the secularist lives only in the present. Now, again, I think it's important to live in the present. We've got to live today. I can't live yesterday, and I really can't control tomorrow, so I have these 24 golden hours, you know, the present, and I'm to live one day at a time. That's important. But I, I don't live only in the present. You know, that's what the secularist does, the worldling. He or she lives only for the here and now. Tomorrow we die, so let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just live right now and enjoy the gusto of life. But the Christian, unlike the Judaizer who lives only in the past and the secularist who lives only in the present, the Christian is meant to live in the future tense, that is, with a heavenly focus and perspective, to look at this world from the vantage point of the next world, to stand on Resurrection Mountain, if I could say it like that, and to view all of life right now in view of what is coming in the future, knowing that this life is brief and temporary at best, but the next life, my beloved, is ultimate reality. The Christian is meant to live in the future tense. In other words, eschatology matters right now. The future matters right now. And you know, the early Christians lived their lives with an overwhelming sense of anticipation for Christ's return. And that hope lifted their lives onto a new plane, filling their hearts with rapturous optimism and enabling them to endure severe hardship. But how foreign is that perspective to people today? So many people today are earthbound, preoccupied with self and success and silver and safety. And they live only for the here and now, but they scarcely think about what is to come. One of my favorite contemporary authors, in fact, he's deceased now, he died just a couple of years ago, is uh, the theologian J.I. Packer. And Packer wrote this, I think these words are very apropos to this heavenly focus and perspective, to living right now with the long-term view. He wrote this, today, by and large, Christians no longer live for heaven. Listen to this. I think that's true. He says, and therefore they no longer understand, let alone practice, detachment from the world. Does the world around us seek pleasure, profit, and privilege? So do we. We have no readiness or strength to renounce these objectives. For we have recast Christianity into a mold that stresses happiness above holiness. 
Blessings here above blessedness hereafter. Health and wealth as God's best gifts. And death, especially early death, not as a thankworthy deliverance from the miseries of a sinful world, but as the supreme disaster and a constant challenge to faith in God's goodness. Wow. He asks, is our Christianity now out of shape? Yes, it is, he answers. And the basic reason is that we have lost the New Testament's two-world perspective that views the next life as more important than this one, and that understands life here as essentially preparation for the life hereafter. What otherworldliness implies, he says, is that you live your life here, long or short as it may be, seeing everything from the pilgrim perspective in Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, and making your decisions now in terms of your knowledge that you are a traveler on the way home. My beloved, that's what we're talking about this morning, living in the future tense, living with a pilgrim perspective, living with a heavenly focus, viewing this world in light of the next world, never forgetting that this world is not all that there is. This is the short and difficult life. The next one, my beloved, is eternal, and therefore every day, if we could keep that in mind, it would make a powerful impact on our attitudes and focus, wouldn't it? That's what it means, the just shall live by faith. We're not just living by what we see and hear and experience around us, but we're living in the knowledge that the invisible world is also real. Heaven is real. God is on the throne. His promises are true. What we're talking about is living life in the future tense is living on the promises of God. I love the Bible because it is filled with the promises of God. Promises such as, I will never leave you nor forsake you that you may boldly say the Lord is my helper. Do you ever just meditate on the promises of God? Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. How about Isaiah 43.2? When thou passest through the water, they shall not overflow thee. And through the rivers, he says, I will be with you. When you walk in the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. What a wonderful promise that is. How many times, my friends, on a sickbed, people rejoice to be reminded that the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. Has that been your case? God has promised. He's pledged. He's vouchsafed himself in covenant commitment to be true to you in spite of your track record. Oh, my beloved, how wonderful are the precious promises of God. Exceeding great and precious promises is how Peter describes them. And you know, Abraham is a man whose life was bathed in the promises of God. If you turn back to his story in Genesis chapter 12 and following, you'll find that God gave him many promises. In fact, he promised him two particular things. He promised him a promised land, a permanent home, and he promised him a promised seed a family, a family that would be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. Abraham lived on the promises of God. That's so important. I love a statement by the late Warren Wiersbe. He said, uh, Christians don't live on explanations. We live on promises. Have you ever asked the question why? Some bad thing happens, some circumstances adverse, 
you suffer some kind of reversal in your life and you say, why, Lord, why does trial touch my life? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the godly suffer? We ask the question, why? Well, the fact is, my beloved, very seldom will God answer your why questions. That's a fact. I will tell you this, though, my beloved, we don't live on explanations. It's okay that God doesn't explain everything to us because we live on promises. God said, whatever happens, even though you may not be able to explain it, I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will sustain you. I will support you and comfort you. What a wonderful thing are the promises of God. I love a story from Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful had wandered from the king's highway and had become lost in Bypath Meadow. And as the sun began to set, Hopeful said, where are we, friend? And Christian said, I, I don't know. They finally decided that they better lay down where they were and sleep through the night. And when they awoke the next morning, standing at their heads was a giant named Despair. And he apprehended both Christian and Hopeful, and he took them as his prisoners and cast them into the dungeon at Doubting Castle, his home. And giant despair threatens them that if they don't make an end of themselves by the next morning, then he will come and fall upon them himself. He shows them the bones of pilgrims who had passed that way before, people who had come through and had not made it out of the despair and despondency of life and there they were and he said I expect your bones to be added to the pile tomorrow morning and all night long Christian and hopeful knowing that their time was short stayed up praying and finally about daybreak Christian sprang to his feet as a man half amazed and he said how foolish I've been and hopeful said what is it brother and Christian responded all of this while I've had in my breast pocket a key called promise, which is able to unlock every door in Doubting Castle. And Hopeful said, that's good news, brother. Pluck it from thy bosom and let's try it. And he took the key of promise and he unlocked first one door, then the next, and then another. And before long, they found themselves clean escaped from the clutches of giant despair back on the king's highway on their journey to the celestial city. Oh, my beloved, the key of promise hidden safely near your heart, will help you to get out of many a despairing and doubtful situation if you learn to use it as God intended for it to be used. Now, Abraham, by faith, trusted the promises of God. Romans chapter 4 tells his story in verse number 18. Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving honor to God, notice this, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham, my beloved, did not stagger at the promise of God. God promised. Abraham did not doubt it. But he was fully persuaded that the things that God had promised, he was able also to perform. That's faith, my beloved. By faith, Abraham trusted the promises of God. Do you live by explanations? If so, you're going to be in Doubting Castle most of your life. But my beloved, may I say, if you live by promises, you can escape the doubts and the fears. Because living by promises is how to live in the future tense. You say, well, Brother Mike, I want cash in my hand right now. I don't want to promise 
a pledge for the future. Well, my beloved, may I say that to trust God who does all things well, even though right now we may be uncertain and struggling and facing difficulties, to trust God to be true to his promise is what it means to live in the light of two worlds, to live with a heavenly perspective. And not only did Abraham do this, but in the reading this morning, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did as well. Notice verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob. Now Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Isaac by faith blessed, that is he pronounced the benediction, the berakah, the blessing, the future prophecy concerning his son Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Notice the focus on the future, concerning things to come. By faith Jacob when he was dying, you say, well that's the end. Notice even though it's the end, he hasn't given up faith. When he was dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph. He's thinking about the next generation, and he worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. May I say, living by faith is very important. Dying in faith, as Jacob did, worshiping even when he was dying. You say, well, when I'm dying, I'm going to forget about God. I'll feel like God has forsaken me then. No, my beloved, his faith was intact. He died in faith and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Can't you see the old man on his cane, leaning to support himself, but yet he's pronouncing prophecy for Joseph's sons, and he's worshiping God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even though my life in this world is coming to a close, Jacob says, I'm thinking with the long-term focus and perspective. I'm living in the future tense. Isaac blessed his sons concerning things that were to come. Jacob, by faith, blessed his grandsons concerning the future and worshiped the God who is the great I Am. And it says, by faith, Joseph, when he died, notice his future orientation. When he died, Joseph made mention of the departing of the children of Israel from Egypt. And he gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, do you know how long it was from Joseph until Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? Almost 400 years. Between Joseph's death and when they finally left Egypt, almost 400 years. You say, that's a long time. But you see, Joseph was able to look forward. He lived in the future tense, and he said, when you leave Egypt, I want you to carry my bones out with you. This is not my permanent abiding place. I want you to take me into the promised land when you go. That is the future orientation that faith gives to the child of grace. Now, my beloved, perhaps you're here this morning. You say, Brother Mike, my life is in shambles. Right now, I look around me. I have financial problems. My house is a wreck. I have issues. I have brush fires to put out. I have so many cares and concerns on my mind. I'm just tied in knots. I'm I feel like I'm being pulled in pieces by the 101 different time demands and attention demands upon my life right now. And Brother Mike, the present is almost overwhelming. My kids are growing up and I'm trying to keep the, uh, you know, the bills paid and the grass cut and all of that. <laughs> and uh, life is just challenging. Life is hard. My beloved, I want to ask you to climb Resurrection Mountain to get on top, if you please, of the Alps, of the promises of God. I want you to look at life from an eternal perspective. Think about the present in terms of what is waiting for us. That's ultimate reality. 
And remember that whatever trials you have right now are brief and temporary, and they are light compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. You know, that's the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for our light afflictions. And every time I quote that verse, I always want to stop right there and ask the congregation, have you ever had any of those? Maybe you're here today, you say, Brother Mike, I've got, I've got joint pain. I've got migraine headaches. I have blood pressure issues. Do you think of those as being superfluous and superficial and unimportant? Are those light afflictions or are they weighty and heavy on your mind? Most people worry about things like that. They're anxious about their health. They're anxious about their finances. They're anxious about their family's well-being. But you see, when we look at the present from the vantage point of the future, when we look at the temporal from the vantage point of the eternal, you can say our afflictions are light. For our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, they're momentary, they're temporary, work for us. You say, no, they're against me, but he says they can be to your benefit. They work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight. Now notice the contrast in this verse, the contrast between something light and something weighty, weight of glory. While we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What he's saying here is that while you look at the eternal, while you're looking at the invisible, while your eye is focused on the promises of God and the reality of God, regardless of the physical circumstances of life around you, while you live in the future tense, you can see afflictions as light and temporary and glory and eternal rest as something permanent and abiding. That's the thought today. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Abraham, the patriarchs, teach us how to live on the promises of God. Now, in this passage that I read in your hearing this morning, he deals with three main episodes in Abraham's life in which he lived in the future tense. First, he deals with the command to leave your home. In verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterwards receive from an inheritance. And that's a reference back to Genesis 12, where God says, get out of your country, Abraham. Now, you may know that Abraham lived in Mesopotamia, which is comparable to eastern Syria in modern geography. And it was a very advanced culture. It is likely that Abraham lived in a multi-story home, which were common in that very affluent culture. Ur of the Chaldees was his town. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence that they were advanced in mathematics. They found trigonometric equations and functions in some of the archaeological finds. They found advance in uh, architecture. They found advance in culture, you know, literature and things of that nature. That It was a very advanced society, but it was a pagan idolatrous society. And God called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And the text says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. So that's the first episode that this passage deals with. Abraham was called to leave home. Secondly, the second episode in this 11th chapter of Hebrews was the birth of a child in his old age. Abraham was promised you will have a child. In fact, you will be a father of 
many nations. You will be a father of a multitude. By the way, his name Abram, his original name meant great father. And then God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He, he was named Abram before he had any children. And then God gave him a new name, Abraham, father of a multitude. Still, he had no children. You say, Brother Mike, I think that would be embarrassing. You know, if Abraham met somebody on the street corner and he said, what is your name? He said, my name's Abram. And say, where are your children? Well, I don't have any. And then when God changed his name to Abraham, where is your family? You have a big family? You're a father of a multitude? No, I still don't have any children. You see, that must have been a tremendous trial in his life. Abraham needed faith to leave home. Abraham needed faith to deal with the perplexity and confusion of a delayed promise, the delayed fulfillment of a promise. For 25 years after God said, you'll have a child, he still hadn't had a child. 25 years later. Don't you think at some point you would have begun to question, did I miss here? Did I fail to understand? Perhaps maybe God has changed his mind or perhaps circumstances were such that it's implausible to expect that he could fulfill that promise. No, my friends, you see, living in the future tense helps us to deal with the uncertainty of change. Leave your home. That's not easy. It helps us to deal with the perplexity of delays in fulfillment of God's promises. I'll give you a child, but 25 years later, that still hasn't happened. And then the third episode, living in the future tense, will enable you to deal with the trauma of loss. For he tells us in this passage that Abraham, after God gave him a son Isaac, he called upon him to offer up as a sacrifice his only begotten son, and Abraham did that by faith. The probability that Isaac was about to die was very real. And Abraham, by faith, faced that trial and was able to deal with the trauma of loss. Now, I wonder if there's anybody here who has ever dealt with the uncertainty of change in your life. You know, when your kids are growing up, you know, they're at that cute age and they're precocious and they're fun to be around and their sense of humor is developing and then they start to compete in athletics and, you know, it's fun to watch them and it's, you know, it's an exciting time. And you and your wife or you and your husband are both pretty relatively healthy and you're, you know, you live in a nice suburban area. And, you know, life is well set up and you're happy and you say, I just want things to stay this way forever. But you know what happens? It's not long. You go to sleep a couple of nights and you blink and turn around and before you know it those kids are ready to leave home and you say now we've got an empty nest and my health starts to break down and my spouse's health starts to break down and you say okay what are we going to do and uh, I miss those little voices I, I, I thought the hassle of child rearing was tough you know finger painting on the windows and the paint on the walls and uh, but I, I would give anything right now to have some little voices running around you know what I'm talking about don't you change is hard maybe your family has changed maybe your health has changed perhaps you have been relocated perhaps you've been let go from your job that you've had for many years and you're just you're nearing retirement and suddenly 
the company is downsizing and they've said, I'm sorry, Mr. Goins, we have to let you go. And you've lost your job and you're now back in the job market and you're almost too old to be marketable. And you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. The uncertainty of change is a great trial to deal with in our lives. There's not a person here who won't have to deal with change in your life at some point. And inevitably, we grieve over what's lost, don't we? I have moved in my life to several different states. Uh, I didn't think about it this morning to get the numbers right, but I mean, I've lived in Texas, New Mexico, Georgia, uh, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, and North Carolina, seven states. I've pastored three churches. My mom and dad live in the plains of West Texas. My oldest brother lives in East Texas. My youngest brother lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I live here on the East Coast, just a few miles from the water in uh, North Carolina. I didn't foresee that my life would be where it is today. I mean, I really didn't plan all of this. And if, if I wasn't able to adapt and accept and roll with the punches and trust the providence of God, I could easily mourn over what is lost. May I say each new stage in life, you say, Brother Mike, I'm I'm getting old. I, I wish I was still young again. I wish I was still in midlife, but I'm starting to get old. I want to tell you, each new stage in life has its new set of joys and benefits and blessings. And yes, there are things that we wish we hadn't lost, right, from yesterday. There are people that we wish that we hadn't lost, but God in his providence weaves change into the fabric of our life like a thread throughout the garment. I mean, everywhere you turn, life is full of changes. But my friends, if you understand that there's a world that is coming that will never change, it will help you to deal with the changes right now. Abraham, I want you to leave your home. Don't underestimate the difficulty of that trial in his life. It must have been tremendously difficult. For his father and mother were there in Ur of the Chaldees, his aunts and uncles, his relatives, his heritage. He probably graduated high school at Ur High School in Mesopotamia. Perhaps he was a football star. Perhaps his name is on the record books. Perhaps, you know, all of his friends were there. And God says, I want you to leave. And Abraham obeyed. He went out not knowing whether he went going, not knowing. Notice the text. By faith, he went out, not knowing. He went, not knowing. Going, not knowing is what it means to walk by faith. I love Paul's words in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Yes, I'm moving forward, but I don't know what the future holds. That's what it means to live by faith. Abraham, my friends, because he lived in the future tense and trusted the promises of God, was able to deal with the uncertainty of change. And he obeyed God. The hymn writer puts it like this, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never, not once, directly commanded someone to obey him? You can search the gospel and look for times where Jesus directly, overtly commanded somebody to obey him. Now, you obey me. Did he ever say that? Not one time. Do you know what he did say? He exhorted people to trust him. 
because trusting him includes the idea of obeying him. And by faith, Abraham left home, and it says he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that is tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he left perhaps a two-story permanent house or home for a Coleman tent, for a tabernacle. You say, that doesn't sound like he was very smart. I mean, why would you leave an established home to go out and wander in an unknown land and live in a tent? Who would want that? Perhaps you like camping. I have to be honest with you, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I've been once, and uh, that was enough for me. Thought that after the first night I was ready to move to, a, you know, to the Holiday Inn Express or something. Uh, I'd much rather sleep on a soft mattress than on the ground and the rocks. You know, I mean, maybe that's your cup of tea. More power to you. I admire you. But it's just not my preference. To think of doing that indefinitely, you know, I mean not knowing where you were going and what the final destination was. God said, leave for a land I will show you. That must have taken tremendous faith. And not knowing when he would receive it to a land that he would after receive for an inheritance. Notice the word after. And it says, by faith, he sojourned. That word sojourn means to travel as a temporary resident, as a renter, not an owner, as a tenant, he traveled as a temporary, he sojourned as a pilgrim. I want to say, my beloved, it's vitally important that you and I keep a pilgrim mindset. What are you? Are you a permanent resident of this earth? Are you going to be here forever? No, we know we're not. And every day we need to remind ourselves, as the old spiritual says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Or in the words of a hymn that we sing sometimes, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear, heaven is my home. Heaven is my fatherland. That's where I belong. That's where you belong. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, my friends, this world is not your permanent residence. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to remember that every day that we live. It's okay to live in a tent. You say, I want to have a 20-room mansion, Brother Mike. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But just know that before long, you too will go the way of all the earth and it will be left to somebody else. And ultimately, everything around us will melt with fervent heat. So if I have a tent right here, it's okay because I'm getting a mansion over yonder, right? In my father's house or what? Many mansions. I like the way the hymn writer puts it. A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though here I'm a stranger, yet still I may sing all glory to God. I'm a child of the King. Yes, my beloved, heaven is my home. 23-year-old Matthew Henry wrote these words to a friend, and I think they are very apropos, and we'll close with them this morning. He said, we are in this world as in an inn or we would say today, as in a motel. We are here in this world as a person who gets a room for the night in a hotel. We are in this world as in an inn, and we must be gone shortly. Now think about the parallel, the metaphor. Why should we then conform ourselves to this world or cumber ourselves with it? Should we not then sit loose to it 
as we do to an end. I mean, if the uh, air conditioner's on the blink in your motel room, do you go down to the hardware store and buy the necessary tools and, uh, you know, items to repair it yourself? And if a light bulb's out, do you go down and buy light bulbs and then stock the fruit? No, my friends, you call the management, right? And you say, I'd like another room, right? Because it's not your response. So we, we sit loose to this, to a motel room. We don't assume too much responsibility for it because we're not the owner of it. He says, and what if we have but ill accommodations? What if you have to spend one night in a room where uh, the aroma is not just perfect? There's nothing wrong with calling the management, saying I'd like another room, please. But he says, uh, what if we have but ill accommodations in this world? Do any of you have ill accommodations in this world? Do any of you have troubles and problems? Matthew Henry says, it is but an inn, and it will be better at home. If our lodging here be hard and cold, it is no great matter, for our lodging in our Father's house above will be soft and warm enough. Indeed, my beloved, after you get home, you'll forget all about your troubles right now. What does it mean to live by faith? It means to live in the future tense, like Abraham, who left home and who wandered as a pilgrim and a sojourner, looking for a city which hath foundations, a permanent home, whose builder and maker is God. He knew that no earthly plot of real estate was permanent. And yes, God did promise him a land, but my beloved Abraham, by faith, was looking to a better country, that is a heavenly, as the text says, where God is not ashamed to be called our God. Like Abraham and the patriarchs, my friends, our faith will sustain us in the vicissitudes of life and will support us in the pain and sorrow of death because we live for the next world, awaiting a better resurrection and trusting the God that can raise the dead to accomplish his purposes in us in the confidence that not a word of his promise will ever fail. As the text says, the just shall live by faith. I trust that you and I will live by faith the next week as pilgrims and strangers in this world looking for that better world that is coming by and by.